I do want to say welcome, center and football uh, to team. I want you to know that we, it is a serious commitment of ours to pray for you and to be behind and, um, and to bless Center College. I mean it. Um, I wish I could describe to you the level we go, but I want you to know that's true. And, um, and so uh, usually, I, my name's Shane, and I'm the senior pastor here. And I usually, when I talk to the athletes, I'll, I usually take a moment to kind of tell you a little bit about some of my um, sports accolades, accomplishments, and that'll, that'll do it. <laughs> and we'll move on. That's an old joke. I've done that one a lot, but it's true. All right. I, um, I grew up in Alabama. And um, any Alabama players? Yeah, there we go. All right. Good. And um, I grew up in Alabama. And um, in your typical southern town, about this size, I uh, grew up around the church and went to college to play uh, football. And it was there, as it was for Chris Jones, uh, it, was, uh, it was there that I became a Christian my fourth year. I crammed um, four years into five, so I stayed for my fifth to play. I was redshirted, and, um, but it's there I came to faith, and um, my life was really changed. And let me just say this, uh, as I've looked back on it, and even then it was true, um, I was relieved in college. I grew up as a skeptic and going to church, and I just didn't know if I trusted the Bible, and just because you say it's true, I mean, I had a lot going on inwardly. But I want to say this, that I was relieved once I came to faith that Christianity wasn't what I thought it was. And maybe I'd heard it portrayed to me rightly. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ was, I was really relieved that it wasn't what I thought it was. And so uh, we're coming to a famous par parable of this um, morning. And, and, and by the way, um, Jesus, well, let me say this. We're coming to a parable this morning. It's a famous one. Some say one of the most um, uh, finest in all the scriptures, but they're all fine. Um, but ultimately, let me just say this, what I think Jesus is doing in this famous passage of the prodigal son is that he is saying Christianity is what you think it is. And um, uh, the ancient audience of the Roman Empire and the Jews who were the churchgoers, they would have been thunderstruck by what what Jesus is about to portray to them, what he says to this parable. Now, there's a bunch of parables going on here in a row that it's he's a discourse that he's using, but this one's one of the big ones. And thunderstruck, I, I use that word to be in awe. I tried to get the worship team to see if they'd do thunderstruck. They, they <laughs> thunder, I mean, no, but we, uh, I, we couldn't pull that one off for you. But they were thunderstruck. And they would have been, the ancient, the, they would have been. So, um, ironically, uh, Romans, in history, what we learned in history, that the Romans actually called Christians atheists because they couldn't figure out a category to put their God in. It must be a non-God because he was different than what they understood, religion or anything to be. So um, now the ancient audience would have, um, hearing this would have been thunderstruck. And just so you know, in the first two verses of Luke, uh, the audience that is listening, that's right here with Jesus, listening to this particular parable, we're, we're told that it was tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes. So tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, non-church and church are present. 
All right? That's the context of it. And, um, and interesting, it's a famous parable, but the question I would pose to you is what, which son of this parable is it about, primarily about? That's an important question. Interpreters, which aren't inerrant, and those who have translated the Bible, put the title, the prodigal son. That's how you know it. But that only emphasizes one, and it might not be the right one. So the real question, which son is this particular parable about? And I would argue that it's both. As a matter of fact, the text tells us, if you look at verse 11, it says, there was a man who had two sons, not just one. So Jesus is teaching about both of them, okay? And so we're just going to walk through them. I'll share a few things with you. I hope that I can, I can highlight to you what was Jesus doing that really made people feel like I felt, that I look at this passage now, that Christianity isn't what I thought it was? What made them have thunderstruck thought to who Christ was and what, he, what it meant to know him? So let me pray. Father, would you, I want to take a moment and pray uh, for center, and um, I pray for the campus, and Cam, and the staff, and Tyler, and Annie, and um, for them that are there full-time for the gospel to go forth. I'm thankful for them. I pray you continue to provide for them the finances to be there. I pray you'd strengthen them. I pray for this team. I pray for Andy and all the coaches, the, the time, the commitment, all that it is. I pray you would be with them this year. I pray that they would have a, a, a great experience together. I pray for the families of the coaches who this is an extra time of sacrifice and the time that they are away. I pray you'd be with the children and their wives. Um, and I pray for this team. I pray uh, for each of the guys. This is the crossroads of life. And so as they enjoy football, would they also be contemplating all of life and the worldviews? And I know all these Kids and every student at center has a story, a story of, that has joy and brokenness. But I pray uh, for, for them that you would show yourself to them. And, um, and then as we look at this passage, Lord, would you help, um, help speak to our mind and help speak to our hearts and may you really be exalted. May, would you somehow grant me just in this few moments, here we are in the middle of a small town, a small college, and a state, and, and yet you, in the world of nine billion people, and yet you profoundly rule all nine billion, and yet you care for us as individuals, and the sheer magnitude of that of who you are. So I pray you would be with us as we um, look in, uh, at your scriptures together. Amen. So we'll begin with the younger brother, and um, you'll see in the story right there uh, that he uh, demands an inheritance. He actually has a speech, and he gives it to his dad, and he demands, um, Father, give me my share of the property. And, um, and he, right out of the gate, he is uh, ready to go. Um, he wants his inheritance, and so just so you know, uh, the ancient world would have understood at this point, uh, he's the younger brother. He would have only received a third of the estate. The older brother would, see, would always see the twice of what everybody else received. So the older brother who's staying back actually will inherit two-thirds. So he's only getting a third, but he uh, still demands it. And um, let me just say, just up front, what does the younger brother, who do I think he represents? Just studying it, and what does he represent? So um, let's walk through it this way. First, um, he, he represents the rebel that just wants to get as far away from institution, 
rules, whatever you perceive, I think just God himself is just like, I'm going to do my own thing and don't want to hear. I want to get as far away as we can. You'll see that. You notice that the, Jesus says he went to a far off country. I mean, that's in there for a reason. He's getting far away from his dad, which by the way, the father does represent God. And so he's getting a walk far away from him as he possibly uh, can. He represents people who um, want nothing to do with what, might, what they interpret to feel probably, I'm, I'm guessing, like rules and restrictions and holding me, uh, holding me down. But maybe another way to say it uh, is that he also represents just the person, the, the, the high value of self-discovery, right? He, he's, he uh, wants to... Um, uh, and where do we see that in verse 13? He wants to live recklessly. He wants to, what, what that means when you study is that he wants to, he has all these desires and all these cravings, and he wants the means in order to fulfill them all. And we know, based on what his brother said, even he was with the prostitutes, that he wants to go do everything he feels and have the means to do it. So it's self-discovery. In a sense, he is standing with his life and saying, uh, my father doesn't know best, God doesn't know best, I know best, and I want to get as far away, and I want to be king and determined. If you give me the space and the resources, I will find happiness. I know how to do this life and um, he wants to be king. And maybe some of his greed and power. I mean, this was a land of a, uh, would have been, uh, probably the implications here is that his father was very wealthy. So he, he may have wanted the greed uh, and the power um, and the, uh, have the status of having wealth at a young age, which was very uncommon. You didn't give away the wealth this early. And so we'll talk about how the father would have normally should have, the ancient world would have thought of him should respond, how he should respond. But, um, but anyway, regardless, his heart was like any, the tale is old as time since Genesis, like mine and yours. And here's at the core of it. We want God-like recognition. We want God-like control, God-like power, and God-like centrality. We want the world to revolve around us. What's a quote from um, Paul Tripp, one of my good authors there, from his book, All. That's what he wanted. And um, in this one moment here, it, it's... It's fair to say, to ask the question, when his pockets are full and he's driving off to the far off land and he gets to do whatever he wants, how do you think he felt? Well, I think he felt pretty good in that moment. Which, by the way, um, sin, the Bible teaches, is fun for a season. Living in rebellion is fun for a season because what we do is that we take created things, good things, and we worship them, and we look for them to give us our source of meaning and life and everything. So uh, what he went off to do was to live in this world and say, my father isn't where my meaning is found. It's found out here, and let me feed upon it and have it, and I know I'll be satisfied. And so, um, and it's fun because it's good things. But it doesn't satisfy the soul. So that's what we do as people. We take good things and we worship them and live for them and define our life from them and they don't deliver and sometimes they destroy us. Eating, eating, I'm looking forward to eating. You can tell I like to eat, right? But eating is, is a good thing, but how you relate to food, which I struggle with, do I go to it for comfort? Is it what I, how you relate to it, do I run away from it? Because, I, I mean, you see that? It's a good thing that we can live for or run away from. And uh, it doesn't deliver. Good things substituted for the, for the real thing of the Father. So it probably felt good for a little bit. But then a severe famine, the passage tells us that a severe famine came. And um, 
It is an interesting story. It usually happens. He goes and he squanders. The passage tells us he squanders everything he had with his reckless living. But then a famine comes to the very land he is. So you think probably he's at rock bottom, but he's not. So it gets worse. And he actually has to go hire himself out to a, a foreign owner, and, uh, which would have been terrible for a Jew. They're thinking he's a Jew here. Jesus is teaching him as a, Jew, uh, as a Jew. And he has to go find himself out and to work. So he's attached to something. So he eventually finds himself at the low rock bottom. And it lets you know that it was pigs on purpose because Jews thought pigs were unclean, that pork was. And Jesus blows that up later and says, quit making food laws. That's what makes you clean or unclean. But here he knew his culture. And so he lets him know that he's as dirty and as far away as he can be. He's actually enslaved to another country. Country. Our country has been left, the Jewish nation. I'm far away, and he's with pigs. He's at rock bottom, stinky, smelly. He's found himself at a very, very, very difficult place. And so it's the lowest of the lows. And notice um, that he sort of comes to his senses, is what it says. Actually, when he came to his senses, and he rehearses a speech to go back home. But here's thunder for me. This is one thing that you can learn from the younger brother. I think Jesus is saying that there is nothing you can do so bad, so filthy, beyond comprehension, which Jesus was adding this to pigs and all that, trying to get them to beyond the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God. That's one thing. You can't do something so bad that it's beyond his grace. And... um. If I'm honest, that hit me because I didn't really believe that. You realize that uh, three of the primary authors of the Bible are murderers? Moses, Pentateuch, David, Paul. You ever read Genesis? It is filthy to read. Patriarchs, Abraham, are pimping out their wives to other kings. And what the Bible's trying to show you is that people are really, really, really broken and do a lot of bad things. And what Jesus is saying is that there is nothing beyond the forgiveness and grace of the Father. Even people who clean up their lives and start coming to church, quote unquote, queen, clean up their lives, even people have things in their past. And I assure you, people sitting in here, center team, have things that are like, I don't know if, this, if God can forgive that, that they've done or been a part of. And um, if I was honest, I didn't really believe that um, growing up. Because I looked at how we in the South treated people who did really bad things, by the way. If someone did one of those forbidden sin, how we treated them, I was like, it ain't true. Can't be true about God because it's not true about the church that God would maybe forgive. Let me just show you how the Father comes real fast. Look at this. When it says that he divided his property, by the way, in the Greek there, it says that, so the son comes to him, and the ancient world would have thought, man, this father has the right. He would have, he would have normally would have just verbally said, get out of here, and would maybe killed him or ran him out of his home. Okay, that would have been the normal response, even the righteous response for their culture. But he doesn't. This father doesn't do that. And the word property there that he divided is actually the word bios or bios in the Greek. And it means this. It means life. So it means, in a sense, it's not a great translation of it, but he divided up his life. So Jesus, when Jesus said in John 10, I've come to have, not, 
not a Zoe blessing, but bios to give you a spiritual life. So it, some, the, the implications are this, is what this father was doing was so loving that he was, it was a, his land and all that he had, his life, he was giving to the son from the beginning. It was contrary to what anybody would have thought he would be his normal response. So that's how he was responding. And why he was still a long way off. Did you see that in the passage? When he's coming back, the son's coming back, and the dad is sitting there waiting, can see him from a long ways. It's like his posture is, I can't wait for this son to come. I've been looking for him and loving him. My children talk about when we go to Alabama to visit my, our, their grandparents, one of the favorite things was that they are always waiting for the driveway when we come home. What does that say to my kids? It says, we can't wait to see you. We love you. And from a long way off, he was doing that. And so he ran. And then, by the way, no patriarch of the day. Children could run. Women could run. Young men could run. But no patriarch of a family like this man would have been would have ran anywhere. They didn't run. They walked. So the idea of him pulling up his tunic and running was an act of humility that was unseen. And this father, Jesus said, this father runs to you, even though you've been to the place. He runs. And remember, so he's going to smell the passage that tells us he cleaned up, he's been with swine, and he embraces him, he kisses him. In the Greek there, that word in translation of kissing is like he fell upon his neck. I mean, you could have grabbed a guy and just his son, and he's the embrace and to kiss him on his neck. He took action, and he listened to him, right? I mean, he listens. He's like, how much, how do you feel, do you feel love when you're listened to? He runs to him and says, I want to hear from you. And he listens to him. And then he summons his sermons and um, says, bring quickly. Notice the adjective, bring quickly, the best robe, and covered him. And so, so, guys, we could go in forever. You could do study after study and all these little words and what they meant. But the robe, he covers him. He's still dirty, but he gives him his best robe, the robe that would represent all who the patriarch was. He covers him with it. By the way, Jesus Christ is the one we are covered or clothed in his righteousness. Our sin is covered by him clothing us with his record and his life. That's what it's, it, There's a lot going on here, but he's clothed in that. He takes his ring and gives him a ring. You know what that meant? The ring was not a, it was worse, was, had more value than a signature. It was like saying, I am conferring to you that you're my son. I'm declaring this is who you are. And he's doing it with such a loving. He gets shoes on his feet, his smelly feet, which that's what that would have symbolized in that time anyway. Do you remember Jesus washed feet? I mean, everything about him, he is loving and cleansing and coming to him and covering him. And the fattened calf the fattened calf would have never been used for something like this. It was only for the Passover and certain events that they, that they held it for. It was special occasions, not this. The love is bubbling over despite what he's done. And so he even refers to him in verse 24. He said, for my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And we celebrate him. The end of verse 24 says he celebrates Presbyterians, we got to figure out how to celebrate more, by the way. Jesus' first miracle was at a feast and a party. We turned wine to water. we got to figure out how to celebrate well. But he celebrated him. Do you know what the word prodigal literally means? It means to be, to, to be extravagant, to waste, in a sense, extravagantly. And so the prodigal son is this idea is that he extravagantly wasted everything. That's why they call him the prodigal son. He wasted and squandered everything. And yet the real point is this, is that this is the prodigal God. Do you see that? His excessiveness to this young boy 
I'm going to tell you, people have been walking with God for a long time, including yours truly. And I struggle to believe that God celebrates over me still this day. The cross tells us that. Some of you don't believe this morning that he's extravagant in how he feels for you. It's extravagant spending. So that was thunder. Nothing you can do beyond the love and forgiveness of God. Seen in the Father and this Son. But then there's the elder brother, and he was near, right? But he, he, so he's near, he gets near the house, and uh, he was close, but he hears about a party going on. He actually hears his dad throwing this huge shebang for the son, celebrating him. And he refuses to go in. And uh, if you notice there, look how he addresses his dad. It's not very reverent. He just says, look. You can see the anger in his voice. These many years I've served you. You're, and basically... Remember the one-third, two-third thing? Well, he doesn't have his two-thirds yet. He's probably going to go about it the right way, wait for his father to die. And so his dad's living off of his two-thirds. He's like, you're squandering more on my brother? And so who does this elder brother represent? If the younger brother represents uh, self-discovery, uh, guess what? The, the older brother, he represents self-righteousness. The younger brother said, hey, I'm going to get what I want by rebelling and standing up to my dad. And I'm going to demand it and go as far away. And that's how I'm going to be king. And that's how I'm going to get control of my father. I don't really love my father. I just want what he has. And I want a way to get it. So I'm going I'm to demand it. And he rebels. Well, guess how the younger, older brother, he's just like his younger, younger sibling. He just tries to get control of his dad by obeying and by being good. I'm going to get what I want by being good. That's what he represents, the self-righteous, being better than everyone else and not making mistakes. And if I do what I'm supposed to do, then I can leverage that to get what I want from the father. And it's clear that he has no, he, listen, he stayed at home and in his heart, he is just as far away from his dad or the father as the younger brother is. Do you see that? And he is trying to get control of it. He, he obeys the father to get what he wants from him. And he doesn't love the father for who he is. He's, he's not, do you see, he is not celebrating what the father celebrates. So what that tells you is that he's not really in relationship with him. You remember Dylan spoke of like he's in college, like I'm, I'm learning to have a relationship with God. This, this older brother didn't have a relationship with the father. He had a transactional business deal based upon his own righteousness and goodness, right? And this is how it plays out in life, and it seeps in, and I, I understand and have the compassion for this feeling. But this is the way those who will function like elder brothers, or maybe are elder brothers, this is the way they relate to God. And I, you could do, I'll take my own self as an example. In the last year, I've had my oldest daughter have open-heart surgery. My mom died six months ago. I've had two car wrecks in our family. I can start telling you a bunch of bills. I could conclude, based upon my circumstances, wait a minute. I've been obeying you, God. Why aren't good things happening to me? How could anything bad happen? I've been obeying. You ever thought like that? We all do, and we won't admit it. 
But you see the heart of that? That's me being an elder brother. I'm saying, I obey so that I can get your estate and your blessing. And that's what this brother was doing. So, his heart is just as bad. So, here's thunder number two. Thunder, all right? The first one is that God, his grace is greater than anyone else. The second one that's like thunder to me that was in college and still remains this day is that you can miss God completely by trying to be good. Because that good, his goodness was about himself. He's self-righteous. And why is that? Because salvation and our relationship with God is not based upon our works. It's not based upon a relationship in is not based upon. Can you imagine? I have two of my sons are sitting here, right here in front of me. Can you imagine if my relationship with to them was this? And I would need to be asked to step down. If I said, I love you when you do good and when you don't, bro, you're on the street. That's a works relation contractual relationship, right? And both of these brothers rejected him. But do you know what the father did? He initiated and went to both of them. He's unbelievably gracious. The passage tells us that he went out and entreated, he went out and entreated the elder son and pleaded with him. Which, by the way, culturally, nobody left the party. It would be rude to leave your own party now, but that would have been an act of humility to walk out. So listen. What we're saying is churchgoers and righteous people and swine feeders and all this. Guess what? Both people need grace and they need the love of the Father. That's what they need. And you can miss the love of the Father by trying to be good. Because our salvation isn't based upon our own goodness. Our salvation is based upon the mercy and the grace of God and Him alone. Ephesians 2 8 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man can boast. Titus 3 4 says that God saved us, not according to the righteous deeds we had done, meaning He loved us, but according to His mercy, according to His grace. Do you realize that Isaiah 64 6 says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God? That our righteousness doesn't bear the forgiveness of sin. And it minimizes our sin and all of who God is. And we just think that some way, basically like the older brother, we think, hey, I don't need a Savior. Tell me what to do and I can do it. And he's got no view, right view of the God and the creator of the world. Our salvation is based on that. Let me just show you one thing as we, as we wrap up. If you look in verse 18, if you look in verse 18, it says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. So he rehearses. The younger brother is at rock bottom, and he rehearses what to say. And he says, I'm going to tell my father this, and I'll say, I've sinned against you. He's like, he admits it. You're good, and I'm not, and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And he says, treat me as one of your hired servants. So when he says, treat me with one of your hired servants, he said, I know I'm bad, and I'm developing a plan to fix myself, and it's not going to be a slave, but I'm going to be a hired servant. I won't even live on your property. That's what the language would have been. I'm going to work and come there, and I need to pay for my restitution. So that's what he rehearses. You see that? Now look, at that moment, he thinks, he didn't got it, he thinks, I'm really, really bad, and I know God's been great, I need to go to my father, but at that point, he thinks the solution is, 
I need to be like my older brother. I need to come up with my own restitution plan. And notice in verse 21, when he gets there, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Boom! And the father cuts it off. He doesn't let him say the rest of it. He doesn't let him say the restitution plan. Why is that? Because his love and his grace was never going to be earned by this son. It was according to the mercy of this father. Do you see that? Listen, the world is in two categories, rebels and self-righteous. You can look at our culture and our country right now. you got the self-righteous arguing against the self-discovery. That's basically the categories of the world, and it's within the church. And both of them have no idea who the real father is and what is the basis of Christianity. What is it about? And we want it to be about our works, and we want it to be about our own self-discovery, but our hope is built upon the love of a father towards us. And not on our restitution plan. He doesn't let him rehearse it. He just starts blessing him. So here's, here's the third thunder. Hear this. The third thunder. The first one was he saves people you can never believe. His grace is far more greater than anything they do. Secondly, is that you can miss God by being good. But lastly, in order to come to the Father, you have to repent of being bad and of being good. That's the gospel. I can't make it, and I need someone. Say that again. That's my story, I grew up an elder brother. I looked down on everybody who drank, smoked, and did whatever likewise. I got to college, and guess what I did? Drank, smoked, I mean, I did all those things. And then guess what I did? I tried, oh, i got to fix my life. And I went back and forth between these two brothers because I thought that the Father of Heaven Loved me according to his mercy, according to my works. And finally, the gospel broke through. So, if you really want to talk about this story, this story is the story of really three sons. There's the younger brother and the elder brother. But there's a third son, and he's the one telling the story. And this thing's a cliffhanger. It doesn't tell you. Yeah, I've always wondered, why is it a cliffhanger? Why does it not tell you what happened? It really doesn't. It doesn't tell you what happened. I think it's because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. So how does one come to the Father? The way that we, uh, hey, tell them to settle down out there. The pastor's going way too long this morning. <laughs> um, you look to the true elder brother. The good elder brother. Did you know that Jesus, when he was resurrected, he said, called him his brothers, and he's your co-heirs with me. He was the heir. He was the true elder brother. Let me just describe how he's different than this elder brother. His heart is one with his father. And he and his father, before time, his father wanted to come and seek and save the lost and save them. And his heart was in tune with that. And instead of sitting at home and not doing anything about it, he emptied himself and he went to find the younger brothers of the world and to bring them in. And he never complained about the two-thirds cost of his life. He willingly paid everything in order for all brothers to come home. He's the good and better and truer elder brother 
He's the way, the truth, the life, the bread of life, the living water, and no man comes to the Father but through him. Trusting that he's the robe that can cleanse you and cover you. Trusting that what he lived a life that you could never live, and he alone paid the penalty that no one else could pay, and he, he did it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And we trust in him for our life. Christianity is not do good and God will love you. Christianity is God loves you and therefore we do good. And when we don't do good, we've lost sight of his love and his grace. So Christianity wasn't what I thought it was. I was thunderstruck. He's turning it upside down. So some of you first years, whatever, y'all take that with you. I pray you think about that, wrestle with it. Everybody, Grace Church, I, we did this last year. We did the same thing last year. I did, y'all remember? We probably need to come back to the elder brother all the time. Every eighth week or something, just to remember that God loves us. So, man, we're going to eat. We're going to sing. We're going to eat. Um, so let, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to sing. Scott and them all, I pray they're going to come up. We're going to sing one last song. It's a, it's, a, it's a cool modern song right now. I love it. Then uh, I'm going to do a benediction, and then we're going to leave. Everybody's going to leave, and then center guys, y'all say hi, mingle fast, but then I'm going to put a screen up, and we're going to talk how, to, how we're going to really eat. I'm going to show you how to set the tables up really fast, okay? That's where we're going. But don't, maybe I shouldn't have said that. In between now and then, until we get to that food, would you remember the true elder brother who came after us? So let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you... Um, uh, <laughs> I was in the middle of nowhere in Livingston, Alabama when two of my teammates started pursuing me. And I knew that their life looked a lot different than mine. And it was more inward than outward in some ways. And I'm thankful that you're a God who pursues people. I pray that we would be a church that remembers that always and that we would want others to, that we would hold up the true elder brother who you are, Christ, to, to this community, to Center, to Danville. And, um, so would you in this next few moments just let us sing to that end. Uh, just sing for a few minutes, sing to that end, the goodness of who you are. Amen.